Dung, 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 dung. Dung, 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 dung. Under pressure. It's how you feel sometimes when you're writing all of those grants. It's true. Grants can be stressful. Fixed deadlines, unanswered emails, crazy application portals. Mm -hmm. How about unrealistic expectations from people who have no idea how the process works? And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Ask us how we know. Not addressing these stressors can lead to serious burnout. But the D.H. Leonard Consulting Team doesn't believe that needs to be the case. They can help you through the entire grant life cycle, from grant readiness to grant management. If there's a part of grant seeking that is stressing you out, reach out to dhleonardconsulting.com to let them help take the stress out of grants. Dum, 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 dum. Well, hello there. I'm Kimberly hayes Muga. And I'm Amanda Day. And you're listening to the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. So we're here to help you make sense of the complex world of grant writing and philanthropy. That includes a lot of how-tos, how to do things, how to make things better in your grant proposals or your fundraising campaigns. But even more importantly, we want to talk about ways we can work together to improve equity and other issues in the overall field of philanthropy. Yep, and remember we do this with the episodes dropping every two weeks. And uh, they're not all about learning because learning doesn't have to be boring. So we try to intersperse a little fun in there as well. This podcast is brought to you by our season six sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Their team can help make grants less stressful by assisting you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, mock review, as well as providing numerous DIY resources, guides, and templates. Don't let grants stress you out. Did you know that with every Fundraising Heyday episode, we create a coordinating blog post on their website, dhleonardconsulting.com. Check it out today. Now today, we're here to talk about a lot of things that people would probably rather not talk about, um, but we need to talk about it and we need to work together towards social justice and philanthropy, So, which includes both grant making and grant writing. So that's right. We're here, but we're here with someone to help us through these difficult conversations. We're here with Fleur Larson. And she's a Seattle-based consultant and facilitator with over 20 years of experience um, helping agencies and businesses and other um, organizations with these difficult conversations. She has a background in education and counseling, and it's given her a perspective on what's needed to move our sector from like a cycle of putting out fires all the time, which I think everyone's pretty familiar with, to a movement based in lasting equity and empowerment. In her commitment as a social justice facilitator, she brings strong skills and experience in community building, power and privilege, and liberation work. Welcome to the podcast floor. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. We're so glad you're here. That we are. So we're going to jump right in with our first question. And there was a huge outpouring of attention around DEI in the workplace and the community, and it seemed to kind of peak in 2020, 2021. Um, as a thought leader in our field, why do you think it peaked then, and what can we do to continue that work so it doesn't just peak and die? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for asking about that, because 
um, that is sort of what's been happening. There was a big wave of um, folks, everyone trying to hire some DEI consultant to, to do some type right. of training. Um, and then it, it did take a big dive um, a year ago. And I think there's a, a couple a couple reasons. First, some um, more logistical ones. I think many places started to hire um, in-house, uh, like a DEI um diversity officer or you know deputy director or someone with an hr they started to hire someone in-house and then you know it takes time for that person to kind of get into their job and start doing some of the work i think that um the climate in which that was happening um was intense and it wasn't a time of a lot of extra grace for learning at any at whatever pace and making mistakes it was and is a climate of like, things are pretty bad, right? The racism is is pretty right. overt and intense. And, um, and there's such a long history that if you're just entering into this conversation or this journey, it might feel like um, um, it's not a place for people just to begin learning when there's actually not a lot of grace left to give because people's lives have been so intensely impacted, right? Um, you know, historically. And so, you know, I think some companies and organizations spent some money and then it's like, whoa, this is hard. <laughs> whoa, this was hard. That didn't go well. So we get to look at what are the definitions of success. And, um, you know, there are, uh, there's a lot of um, kind of pre-work or other skills that are needed to even do racial justice work or engage in it, um, you know, particularly like, do you have a culture of healthy conflict at your organization? Do you have a climate or culture where you can talk about hard things about anything? Um, you know, the concepts of accountability, it's like, how do you do accountability about anything at your organization that isn't just a performance evaluation or performance improvement plan, right? So it, it kind of, sh- it also shined a light on other areas that were already maybe not going well or not strong in our sector or in the organization. Um, and then just, you know, more plainly, it, it really highlighted the white fragility. The like, ooh, I don't, I, I feel bad in this conversation, or I don't want to talk about this, or the defensiveness, right? So white fragility is like being challenged and then being like, I don't want to, you know, projecting or deflecting or trying to squirm out of um, squarely looking at um, white folks' complicity in ma- maintaining and benefiting from from the racism that we've all been kind of indoctrinated into, and um, so I think you know there's this whole uh, whole climate around it, and then just straight up budget, right? Money, you open your books and it tells you what you value. You just can point to it. What do you value? Where do you spend your time and money? Um, and I think also it's it might be a little bit of an identity crisis because if we're going to truly take on equity and social justice um, and racial racial justice and liberation, then the purpose of many nonprofits and their mission might need to actually evolve because many nonprofits have a mission that is about band-aids. It is about a cycle of just sort of like, um, you know, food banks are kind of a great example. Clearly people need food. You know, right? But but why do people need food? Why are they hungry? So you know, I, I worked for I I um, did a couple conf- um, workshops at a conference for a food bank, and they were very proud of how much more food they were going to give away next year. 
people need food. Let's be clear, right? Like immediate, immediate needs need to be met. And there was no conversation about like, and what are we going to do to put ourselves out of business? What are we going to do to stop this hunger cycle? What are the policies that we need to be advocating for? How does money need to be reallocated? Why are families going hungry? Right? Why aren't we not funding school lunches? Why is there not daycare so people can, you know, like it brings up a much bigger systemic conversation. And when you're just focused on your own mission and then like the kind of um, feel good, oh, look, we gave away all this more food. And like then, then the martyrdom and then the gold stars, like that cycle, addressing equity means you're actually going to have to look at the systemic picture. And that might mean your, your mission changes. And, and that's a little bit of an identity crisis potentially. And some folks don't want to look at that because your life's work might be like, oh, my life's work's just been a Band-Aid and you're telling me that's not good enough, <laughs> right? right? And we do need to look at the, the way martyrdom absolutely undermines equity in the nonprofit sector, right? And that goes back to our origin story of how did the nonprofit sector start, right? Rich white women who didn't work and, you know, didn't have um, other purpose, like looking to really have agency in their life and connecting it to religious good works. And um, it, we have this kind of rickety origin story that we are built on. And what perpetuates from that today is, is how... And I'll just name, you know, for myself as a white woman, and white women are the major, the dominant group in nonprofits and education and healthcare in the helping professions. And it's I've been looking at like why, 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 why are there so many white women in this in the helping professions? What's up with that? It's my group. I, you know, consider myself a bleeding heart, a recovering bleeding heart, right? Look, had to look at my own martyrdom, and it really does come from um, wanting to be seen as good and helpful and virtuous. And so much of that is very actually historical. It didn't just start like with me and my interest in wanting to help people. And let's be clear, caring for people is absolutely <laughs> needed, right? right? And different communities, marginalized communities, underrepresented communities, folks of color have been caring for their own communities the whole time. And then when we had this sector created around it, it actually brought with it a bunch of the almost like personal baggage of those that um, were and currently the majority group. So how are my white lady norms of wanting to be seen as good and virtuous and martyring myself, like working overtime for less money, how that's actually undermining equity? Who can afford to do that, right? Um, you know, I live here in Seattle, so I'll give kind of a, a strata, a very dramatic um, pronounced example is I know many white women who do great work, right? Um, whose husbands, you know, work at Amazon, Microsoft. So essentially subsidizing their nonprofit work. Who can afford to do that? Who can afford to do AmeriCorps? So then you get, that's partly why you see so many white women in nonprofits. We have this economic, um, this economic and kind of gender dynamic, and it didn't just start now. And so I really want to bring in this historical legacy and context. And that brings us to then, then if you're challenging, hey, actually, the way you're martyring yourself or the way you're overworking or your my white lady norms, how they're impacting things are actually not supporting racial justice, right? And then the white fragility, like, but, but, but I'm a good person, but, but, but I'm here to help. And then we saw a big conversation peak and then a lot of backpedaling, a lot of backpedaling and a lot of pretense for why oh, well, you know, now's not the right time or, um, you know, that wasn't, um, 
you know, thoughtfully, they they were really angry when they delivered that feedback to us. I, I spoke to a white woman the other day who, you know, she does have a good analysis around racial justice. And even still, she was like, you know, if the, the person of color who left and gave us all this feedback, they really made people feel bad. And I asked her, which people felt bad? The white people felt bad. And the other folks of color were like, yeah, that's, that is what's happening here. Wow. And she said it. Right. So, you know, this is it's it's a moment. It's like a, a big bubble of a moment. And we have this historical context that we get to look at and, and be honest about, get to be honest about it. Um, and, you know, this isn't about shame or blame. You know, thank you, Brene Brown, for all the lovely work on how shame is not useful. It right. can be a catalyst. It can be a place for self-awareness or examination. Like, oh, how have I contributed to this dynamic? Or what in me is wrapped up in my ego being seen as helpful and good and wanting to be liked. That is a huge dynamic with white women around perfectionism and how we're viewed. And, um, and again, so this isn't about making anyone feel bad. It, it's an opportunity to, to be in self-reflection and to notice how am I contributing to the current situation and really being truthful. And, and some of that can be quite scary. Right. A lot of truths have been named that might make us feel bad because we're basically going like, oh, I've been complicit in that. Mm -hmm. and, and there is that dichotomy of like, but I'm a good person, so I'm not racist. Right. And we get to look at the, the two truths can be happening at the same time. We are good white people who are doing good work and helping folks. And we also have racial bias. We have, all humans have bias. You know, thank you, neuroscience. It just normalized that all humans have bias. So, and that's where we get to, and I'll just name, you know, for myself, it's been quite freeing to not continue to try to defend and pretend like, or get you to see how good I am. No, no, no. But I'm one of the good white people. I don't do those things, right? I'm one of the good ones. And actually just drop that and be like, yeah, I made some mistakes. Oh, I, it was my racial bias. Oh, I made a mistake. I didn't even see how that was a mistake. You know, like holding it like a learning opportunity. It's not in this, you know, anything about who I am as a human on the planet. It really is like, oh, I was taught some stuff and now I've got to unlearn it. And, um, you know, the, the ability to self-reflect and grow is essentially what the opportunity is. Um, but usually people have feelings. <laughs> usually people have feelings right. about Process, right. right defensiveness and like oh but you don't understand or you know like feeling upset or guilty or whatever it is so feelings come up and you know one thing that's true is you just there's only thing to do with feelings is feel them right like that's pretty much the option you got to feel the feelings you can't just try to like figure your way out or be a floating head right um, there's many phenomenal people that are doing amazing work around connecting the somatics you know resma menicum somatic abolitionism is like we can't just try to think our way through this incredibly complex issue that also really like is about how our bodies respond to things right when right. we're triggered when we're nervous when we're scared when we're defensive just literally you know science our prefrontal cortex is zapped with adrenaline and we can't think and so then you get lots of quick defensiveness um, people saying stuff that maybe they wouldn't have said otherwise and we're seeing that now we're seeing a reaction of like whoa 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 this that was hard or that brought up some some stuff or that consultant just wasn't very good and i'm a consultant so i'm i'm aware of it what it means for me to say that and it's fine like not every i don't have to be for every organization right. but if you go through a few consultants and they're all telling you similar things what's the common denominator right so it's not 
not the consultant, just like with, you know, my, my daughter, it's, it's not about the cookie, right? It's like, it's about the, Ooh, what am I feeling here exactly. that I'm trying to project and, and go elsewhere? And I know we like took this somewhere else right now, but I just, you know, there's all of this stuff around, you know, this is more of a three-dimensional thing, not just an equation. People stopped what's going on. It's really this like bigger hologram of, of looking at systemic change and what is it going to take? And I also just want to name that, like, what do I have to gain from doing this? It's not just all about like do hard work. Um, it is, but in the process, I've gotten the chance to skill up around healthy conflict, right? There's all these tangential skills that it's like, oh, I get to figure out about how do I communicate with folks differently than me, um, engaging in healthy conflict, right? There's all these other things. So there, it's not a just zero sum game, right? Where in order for there to be more equity, I get to, I have to lose out financially or my, my, you know, ego, it's really like, I, I actually get to be a better human in the process, right? Like that's, that's, what's in it for me, right? My own intrinsic motivation. I don't just do this to be a good white person or because it's my values. It's like, oh, I get to unlearn all of this stuff that is just in the air we breathe around racism and around how to treat people and just, you know, my own internalized superiority. I want to try to not use too much jargon and lingo, right? But um, it really is, you know, white supremacy culture is just in the air. And so it, you know, it wasn't my fault. It's not your fault. We all just got it, but we get to unlearn it, right? And then the, what's the freedom I get actually also in the process of unlearning it. That's true. That was a um, long answer to that yeah, question. but it was, it was a great answer and it segues beautifully into the next question. But I also, I feel like I, for people who are just listening to us and not watching on YouTube, let me back up and say, I'm white, Amanda's white and Floor's white. And the reason why three white ladies are on, are talking about this is because Amanda and I were exploring um, among the sort of the let's make philanthropy better kind of thing, how to have those kinds of conversations. And maybe I'll, I'll just, you uh, echo back your language, how to how to have healthy conflict when talking about white supremacy and racism with other white people, whether it's mm -hmm. board members or executive directors or staff, because certainly in Atlanta and as you talked about in Seattle and industry wide, most nonprofit employees tend to be they, they it trends toward white women. And there, there are all, all sorts of reasons for that. But I also thought it was really important to have a white woman who specializes in this come and talk to other white women so we can all talk to each other. Because the reason it segues so beautifully into it is one of the a main impetus for getting into this conversation was um, having it. it it's, I'll just center it on me for a minute. But it's about working with white people and other white people and saying, yeah, Yep, racism is a problem and we need to do these things and we need to talk about these things. And having white people in the nonprofit arena look me in the eye and go, there is not a problem. I'm a good person. Why do I have to say that I'm not racist? Everyone should know that because I'm a good person. And this says a lot about me and how I handle things. But I was just like, okay, but racism is bad. Can we agree that that's bad? And when that doesn't happen, instead of trying to engage further, I'm like, y'all are ridiculous. I'm out, you know, and that's 
not helpful, but that's where I go. Cause I'm like, I don't even know how to approach that when you're denying everything and we can't find a, Hey, bad things are bad conversation. Let's make them better. And so that's not helpful. And so part of this is, is, is a selfish because I would love to learn how to, um, have that ha- be in conflict, but have it be healthy and not just so polarizing that no, it doesn't exist and we're not going to talk about it. And then me going, yeah, okay, I'm going to go do something else over here. Um, so th- that gets to the question, how can I engage in meaningful conversations in a healthy way with people whose views are so different? And I'm not just talking about family members. I'm just talking about mainly out in just out in the world. Amanda, did you want to say something earlier when I was well, I was just going to say, too, if you're someone going, well, I'm just the grant writer. What does this have to do with me? I'd like to go back to something you said earlier, Fleur, where you were talking about, you know, the food banks, like we're giving more food this year. And I know as a grant professional, you really do feel like to keep getting the funds through, whether it's through donations or through um, grant awards, you feel like every year you've got to be able to show you've served more people or you've given more this or you've had more programs. Because if you feel like if you don't show that you're growing why are these funders, why are these donors going to keep funding you? If they're like, you've been doing the same thing for three years and you're serving the same, you know, 1200 people and we're done with you. So you feel the pressure to expand in those ways, but you're right. If all you're doing is putting more band-aids, you're not helpful. So it may be an opportunity as a grant professional for you to look back going, okay, we are having to serve more people. What, what, what is broken? And should we be spending some of our time fixing that so we can shrink the number of people we're serving? But it's a whole it's a whole different way of looking at it from a grant perspective that I think you're right. We all need to be considering it. So. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. I mean, what you're illustrating is the need to bring in how are you addressing mm-hmm. this from a systemic, how are you addressing systemic yeah. pro- the systemic problem, not just fixing the immediate need, which does need attention. People do need food. People do need housing, right? Like, so not to discount um, frontline folks or people that are handling or doing immediate needs. um, But really then if we're going to have sustainability, um, we need to be thinking about, and also if we're going to have liberation, how are you addressing the systemic nature of this, right? And so it could be, it's not an either or, you can just start adding it in, even just the language around, this is a systemic problem. Mm -hmm. Right. It needs to be addressed at a policy level, at a budget level, right, at a community level. And um, there's, of course, always opportunities for collaboration there. There's also yep. like a lot of siloing or in the competition, right, for yes. grants to come. Boy, how, here's, fund us, fund, fund us. And what if you really, we were like, no, let's go for a win-win. Let's lift up each other's organizations, right, and collaborate instead of the nonprofit hunger games and competition, um, so, you know, as a grant writer, I think there's opportunities with language and how you're even describing this. And like, we're addressing this systemic problem through the immediate needs that will need to be looked at differently eventually if we're going to be, you know, handling this. And or the reason we're only working with the same 1,200 people is because we're, we're focused on relationship. And we know that through relationship, we can get through hard things, right? We can actually support folks in um, figuring out what their next life steps are, right? And that all of this is about relationship um, and having to be transformational rather than a transactional 
right, interaction, just numbers and just data, right? So that, you know, really painting a picture of, of what the purpose is around that and kind of flipping the what's being valued, what's being valued, not just, you know, progress is bigger and more, but perhaps actually serving fewer people means we're serving them, um, you know, more fully, more, you know, better. And actually then they're actually moving out of needing our services because we're able to spend so much time with them, right? Instead yeah. of just churning through or not having enough time to build relationship with folks and really hear what do they need? What do they want? Having everything directed by those most impacted, right? People closest to the problem or closest to the solution versus coming in and swooping in. Here's what I think this community needs, or I like to think about, I like to do it this way. So I'm going to offer, you know, they should want my help in this way type of thing. And then, you know, Kimberly, I'll go back to your um, question. Sure. Here. I think you, you beautifully set it up that, and it's so common, like, right. So racism's bad. Like, can't we agree on that or have some common shared understanding? I think what happens for people is when that's said to them, either literally in their mind or just so quick, we don't know it is then we go, so you're saying I'm bad. If I don't agree with you, are you saying I'm bad? Like racism's bad. And then, and therefore I'm bad because I'm not going to agree with you. And so much of this goes to like core human stuff really fast, mm-hmm. right? Are you saying I'm a bad person? Um, and, you know, I think there's many strategies for how to, how to get in there. And, and what do I say to other white folks is like one of the number one things that I hear from other white folks. I'm like, how do I handle this with my board, Absolutely. With my donors, with my uncle, right? With my yeah. husband. Like, you know, like every stakeholder group, you might have actually a little bit of a different strategy. And similarly to what we're just talking about with with grant writing and programming, relationship, you center, you start with relationship, right? Like that is what's most important. People, um, you know, and you get to decide, right? Um, Do people know that you care about the relationship? And... And I have a, I feel like, you know, there's sometimes I speak in bumper stickers because we need some short little slogans to like, especially when we're like in the moment, like, oh, what do I do or say, you know, really going for one strategy I've I've developed and I feel like is pretty useful is go for connection versus correction Mm -hmm. with another white person. That's what we're talking about right now. Connection versus correction. Now, you might also say, well, this I know to be true. So you still might provide information, but inside the, you know, not wanting to just, just correct somebody, right? The clobbering, you're bad, agree with me, right? Anytime we kind of feel like someone's trying to convince us of something, often we kind of put in some dig in our heels and, you know, just a little bit of human nature. I'm like, I'm just not going to, right? Um, and so it's it's less about convincing someone, but more about connecting where are the openings or the inroads? And then making some statements like, well, this I know to be true. All humans have bias. Thank you, neuroscience. It just normalized. So, okay, therefore, ergo, if we all have bias, then it must be happening. And there's implicit bias, right? And explicit bias. Implicit, I don't even know what's happening. It's so fast, right? And then there's explicit, like, oh, I totally had that thought and did that thing, right? And so what do we do about, it's not, I don't have bias and trying to convince, you know, prove to everybody, or you should just, why, why should I have to say I don't have bias? It's more like, how am I managing for my bias? Um, now you might not explain it all like that or in that way, but at least having your own, um, kind of thought process around it. And I do think of two things. What am I up for when I'm going, when I'm going to be talking with somebody, what am I up for? 
And often people get stopped at like the words, like, I don't, I don't know how to explain it or what to say, or I don't have all the data points and that's okay. Right. That's our own perfectionism kind of getting in the mm -hmm. way of maybe tr trying, just trying, right. Trying something else. Right. You said, I say this and then they don't agree. And then we kind of, I kind of, you know, so it is about like, all right, creativity. I got to try again, like something else, say something else. And it's going to be trial and error. So that brings up our own stuff about like not knowing what to say, thinking we're not going to sound smart or, you know, say it in the right way. So there's two things. We don't need to wait to feel competent or confident in order to engage in these conversations because we might just, you know, wait and wait and wait. Right. And that's where I think perfectionism in particular with white women has a certain dynamic and, and feel to it. Yeah. Where um, so much of our identity is wrapped up on being seen as good, likable and doing things perfectly. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. And, you know, so again, not about blame. We look at the historical dynamic on like in order to make it in a man's world around, you know, I'm talking about the way sexism has impacted us and then set us up to be vulnerable to colluding with this insecurity and then therefore backing away from living our values around racial justice, where then I don't know what to say, so I'm not going to engage or I don't want to rock the boat, right? Or, well, it's a donor, we need their money. And so again, that's where like, this goes personal pretty quick, right? To like, yeah. you know, what were you praised for as a, as a little girl and inside their good little white girl? What were you praised for? What did you get in trouble for? And how did that set us up to kind of collude with this, this stuff of, of keeping things in place, right? And, um, and, you know, I used to just only kind of be able to clobber other white people and correct them. That is a useful thing to be able to do at certain time and place. But I needed more skills than that. Yeah. To be able to to preserve the relationship or to just say, yeah, I disagree. It sounds like we think differently and, and say it in a lighthearted way rather than like, I disagree and therefore you're stupid because you yeah. don't agree with me. Right. Like, and so some of this is, that's where I've grown. Right. And again, that's the, what's in it for me is I got to skill up around how do I communicate around this? What are my thoughts when I'm shocked at someone, you know, that I'm shocked means I'm also then flooded and I can't think. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. So then it's the, all right, got to come back at it. So there's trial and error, think of things in draft and that pushes up against our perfectionism and wanting to be seen as good and, and all of that. So um, again, I feel like we're circling back to a couple of themes here. Um, but so much of this is about living in integrity, right? I get to actually be in right relationship with myself. And there's a little bit of like, white women haven't had to do that. We're just set up as gatekeepers in this role around in the helping professions. And there's a way in which we are, us being helpful has been good enough. And there's been a way in which that's meant I haven't had to or gotten to be as big and bold as I actually could be as a human on the planet. And, um, and so we're seeing, you know, that's cue the white tears, right? Right. Cue the white tears where then people feel like, oh, but I'm a good person. And now you're saying I'm not. And I look how much I've, how much work I've done. And then the history of martyrdom. Right. And then it becomes about reassuring me versus the person right. that was 
the person of color that might have been harmed in, in something that happened that I was getting feedback on, for instance, right? So you see this kind of cycle or, you know, um, swirling around of where these things then come up. Oh, that is fair. Well, and I, Kimberly, I've over the years have tried to look at it too as like, even if my conversation doesn't change that person's view, because I know that's not necessarily the aim, you just wanted to think about it, you know, maybe they have to hear it from me and I'm just the starting point. And then the third person they hear it from, from it finally clicks, but it wouldn't have clicked that third time if I hadn't have had that first conversation. And so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, planting some seeds and put myself out there for those things. Yeah. Thinking like I'm just one of the little, one of the little points on their journey to understanding some things differently. And it is really helpful to think of it as if you've never had to think about your own biases at all, to suddenly be confronted with it. There is this just like you know, immediately. The first time I heard about it, that was my immediate response. Oh, not me. I'm friends with everybody that I would never do that. But the more you, the more I heard from different people, I'm like, okay, I'm starting to see some of these things. So it does. um... And also it, I think it's a great, if you, if you're white and listening to this and you're like, I don't, when I try and engage with this board member or this, um, or maybe you're serving on a board with someone, or maybe you're working, maybe it's a peer, maybe it's not necessarily someone who, to whom you report, but it just struck a chord when you were like, yeah, you don't, you don't have to have all the data. Cause I was all, I was like in that, in, in those moments when that's happened, I'm like, huh, huh, okay, 1619, this, 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 this redlining. Da, 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 da. And I'm like running through all these things. And it's like, that's really not what that's really not gonna necessarily change anything for me to spit out a bunch of things about in that moment maybe that's a different conversation for a different time but um not ever returning to that conversation actually is not is is the least helpful thing i think both for for this person and me and for me to just, you know, instead of just going, sure. wow, man, you are real. I'm trying to keep it clean, Amanda. I'm trying not to cuss. Wow, you're really <laughs> messed up, um, and, and it, which is my usual. Wow, you're really messed up by, okay, by mm-hmm. is, no, that's really not the helpful thing because I feel like where I can have the most growth and affect the most change is having meaningful connections and conversations with other white people because I feel like people of color probably by and large are really clear on all of these things because they've been living in it. I've been living in it too, but because of the color of my skin uh, and my level of education and my privilege, I can kind of step back. I could make it to where I never had to deal with it, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. live in a place, have a job, you know, it could. And so I just feel like for me to sort of answer the call to either affect change. I think it comes, I think the call needs to come from within the house. If this was a horror movie. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that segues into the next great question is that when you do have people that are starting to realize this and so they're like, okay, I want to do something about it. But Mm -hmm. oftentimes the knee jerk reaction is to ask, Hey, I know someone of color. Let me ask them what I should do to help them. And that's, that's Mm -hmm. not the route to go. I know that's not the answer, but what is, what is the, how can they take it beyond just, okay, I I figured out this now, what can they do next? Well, and especially for, you know, your, your community, your listeners, folks in fundraising, grant writers, um, there are great examples out there of like, what does this mean practically 
on a day-to-day basis how you might do things differently. So there's two things. There's actions and then there's our analysis. And you want to, you know, right foot, left foot, be developing analysis. There are no shortage of books and podcasts and articles to read. Like that's, you know, um, and that's not enough, right? We have to put it into practice. Right. So I want to name and uplift, you know, community-centric fundraising are a set of principles yeah on how to live this a little bit differently, how to engage in fundraising in a way that honors the communities that are being served, being directed by them, not shying away from hard conversations with your your um, donors, et cetera. And so, you know, that is a phenomenal community to plug into. They have a weekly um, newsletter. There are There's a Slack channel and there are, you know, chapters or groups that organically meet all over the place it's a worldwide um they have a worldwide kind of guiding group and then people are, are pop making doing pop-ups all over the place so it's not like you just have to like be like well how do i do this and then you know have to come up with it on your own um and michelle mary in particular who's a, a dear colleague of mine you know she has a phenomenal podcast the ethical rainmaker Mm-hmm. She interviews folks with really, really interesting, um, you know, stories and information around how do I do this differently, especially specifically, right, as a grant maker or grant, grant writer, excuse me, um, or fundraiser. Um, what does this look like in practice? Um, and so I think that's actually, that's, if I could hop in, that's actually how we found you was through community oh, centric right. fundraising. Right. And right. the two of you wrote an article together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, Amanda, I don't know if I read it first or you read it first, but we like, it was like, here, read this and we yeah. need to talk. Yeah. We need to have this on the podcast. So it's, it's yeah. community centric fundraising and um, they have, I mean, it's, you can Google that and find them and, and you can find links to our many different articles and also to the ethical rainmaker podcast as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, super helpful. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, just circling back to um, it is a key strategy for white folks to reach for other white folks. That is a very like that is the strategy. Right. Um, Racism is a white people problem. We created it. We get to clean it up. We get to be directed by our colleagues of color. And um, and so reaching, you know, so my main work is reaching for other white women. Because I really had to grapple with my own, yep. um, you know, martyrdom and and coming to that realization of like, oh my gosh, my martyrdom is undermining equity, and totally having my own identity crisis. But like, but I did good work, right? Like, yes, and there was some harm. Yes, and it perpetuated a, a historical narrative around being a white woman gatekeeper, right? So I think there's this way in which like us, you know, reach for your own people, go get your people because you know them. Right. Like I've never been a grant writer, so I can't like speak to that specifically. Right. Like, you know, the ins and outs, all the examples or all the, the, you know, the real pressures on if your grant doesn't succeed, you don't get the grant, then you don't get the money. Then the program doesn't, you know, like those are some real stakes. Right. And so you've lived that. I haven't. And so really getting to reach for your people around. All right. Well, here's how we can do this differently. Um, Still serving the folks that need to be served while also shifting and doing this doing this in a way that is really actually about liberation and, and social justice and racial justice. I just feel like we could talk about this all day. This has been amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for breaking everything down. And um, I'm hoping that it's as helpful for people who are listening as it has been for, for me. And I think for Amanda too, it's been amazing. Thank you so much. Well, yeah, it's nice to, to hear somebody say, I mean, you're, you're saying such impactful and such important 
and truthful things, but it, not, like you said, you're not clobbering anybody over the head nope. with it. And I think that's, I mean, if, if you're new to this and you're like, I don't even know what to say, re-listen to this. And like, there's language you've mentioned that I'm like, I, I'm going to adopt that, that, that language because that's a good way to go about it. I like that. So thank you for. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here. It's, it's really fun to get to connect with you two and your community in the Southeast. I will just name, I was just in North Carolina visiting um, some family in Asheville and Franklin Beautiful and family in, in Conyers, Atlanta. So I have some Southern family that's been oh. lovely to connect with. You were right down the road, right down the road from me. Yeah, I'm in oh, East really? Cap County. Yeah, it's like two exits down on I-20. Who knew? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't go to Conyers. They, uh, my uncle drove up to Asheville, so um, That's okay. we you know, it's just yeah. So, but close, close, yeah, close by. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And um, what is the best way if people want more information about the work that you do? What's the best yeah. way for them to find out more and how to contact you? Sure. So my website is fleurlarsonfacilitation.com. And Michelle, Mary, and I have uh, an upcoming workshop training series in November on um, community-centric fundraising principles. And it is specifically for white women and nonprofits. Um, and we're going to, it's an intensive. So it's four days, nine to noon Pacific, um, four days intensive in, in November. And all that information is on my website. If, if folks want to really just dive in and like get get a consolidated um, amount of time and then be able to implement um, on your own. So those are some great ways to, to reach out. Great. Sounds wonderful. Well, thanks again. And um, we will just keep on keeping on on fundraising. Hey, Dave, bringing on these, having these conversations and offering resources and helping people work toward solutions so that we can all be better. Absolutely. Thanks so thanks much for having me. Thank thanks. You. Well, that was an amazing interview with Floor. Just a really great discussion. And before you go, please, we want you to know that we got some more great things in the works. So Amanda's going to start off by telling you about one of them. I sure am. If you are planning to attend the Grant Professionals Association Grant Summit in Kansas City, it is November 1st through 4th. We hope you come and we hope you stop by and visit us because Kimberly and I are going to be the podcasters at the event, right? We're the official podcast at GPS Grant Summit. Yes. So we will be near the exhibitor hall. So kind of close, but not too close because we, you know, maybe a little quiet. So we will be doing some podcasting there. Other, we may even grab for Wednesday night, the opening reception. We may be going around talking to people and asking them to come with some sound bites on the show and all kinds of fun things. So if you're going to be at the conference, Please come by and say, hey, come see us. Um, if we're recording, you can come by quietly and see what's going on. I know Kimberly's going to like, quietly. Um, Sound quality. If you see yeah. a recording sign, just wave. And if there's no recording sign up, come on in. We're yeah. so excited. We are. And we're hoping, too, that if you're unable to attend the Grant Summit, or maybe you're attending virtually, or maybe it's just not in the cards for you this year, that this can provide a little bit of um, that experience and also some great information because we're really excited. Um, We're getting some wonderful folks to interview, uh, some of which will GPA will take on and some of which will be incorporated into season seven. Absolutely. So another cool thing that is gonna be in season seven is that Amanda and I are launching the fundraising Hey Day 
book club because nerdy nerd nerdersons need to unite. Um, <laughs> it'll be well. We're launching it in January 2024, and we if you will go to our website. Heyday Services, H-A-Y-D-A-Y Services.com. There'll be a little button there where you can get put on the waiting list. So you'll be the very first to know when we're rolling it out. Um, it There will be uh, some price points attached to it and a list of books and all sorts of good things. It'll be a monthly book club. And one of the reasons we're doing this is because we both love to read and we know a lot of people who love to read. But the other thing is that we want to do something that will allow us to continue with the podcast the way we're doing it now we have sponsors that cover our production costs so we i mean that's been fantastic uh but since 2018 we've had our production costs covered but we are doing the research and content development and interviews and all those other things the show notes all the stuff we're just doing it because we love to do it and we will keep doing it but if you're wondering if you ever wanted to support the podcast join the book club. We wanted to do something that you could just access from our website instead of maybe going behind um, uh, another kind of like paywall environment. We just wanted to keep it there. So if you if you like to read fiction, nonfiction, eclectic things, and you like to talk about books, then give it a try. And, and you um, can hang out with us once a month for book club. Oh, right? oh what that? could be even better but um but seriously though um give it give it some thought and you can jump on our waiting list and we hope to see you at the gpa grant summit yep thank you again to our season six sponsor dh leonard consulting and grant writing services we appreciate their support in making grants less stressful visit their website dhleonardconsulting.com to download their latest resources today As always, we're honored you chose to spend time with us today. Please join us for our next episode of Fundraising Heyday, where we're going to discuss, and I have a feeling ranting will be involved, um, about the reasons grant applications are denied. So many thoughts, so many feelings, so little time. Yes, but we'll be squeezing in a conversation. So see y'all in two weeks. Bye.